All right. Hello, Copy Conversations listener. Today, we have a very special guest. We have Suhu, the managing partner of PwC Malaysia. Welcome to the show, Suhu. Thank you, Shaz. All right, Thank Suhu. you for inviting me. All right. My pleasure. I mean, you're technically my boss, 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 boss. So maybe. <laughs> so no, no, no. We work with everyone. You don't work for me. Exactly. Um, so Suhu, maybe um, just to give a brief overview about yourself, uh, maybe tell us a little bit about how maybe your whole career and yourself uh, to our audience that may not um, know you um, for now. Okay, thanks, Shaz. Just like everyone else, I try not to tell my age, but definitely I'm a Gen X, not, <laughs> not even a Gen Y, but it's uh, certainly smack into the Gen X uh, period. So I'm, about, I'm 52. So as a bit of a background, uh, I'm a son of a civil servant. So uh, as because being a family or from a civil service background, the tendency is that you travel around the Malaysia. Mm. I think if I were to look back, I probably have lived in four or five places throughout my teenage uh, children, child days, right? Childhood mm. days, ranging from Penang to Johor to Taipei, Ipoh, and etc. But of course, from upper secondary onwards, uh, I went on to Singapore to study under a scholarship program. So I actually lived there for about 10 years, including uh, some years working in uh, Singapore. So uni also Singapore? Uh, uni is also Singapore. I'm, I, I was uh, educated in NTU uh, doing mm -hmm. accounting degree because at that point, I think in Singapore, if you want to do accountancy, you have to be in NTU, not NUS. Oh, okay. Yeah. So that's a little bit of my background. And since 1996, uh, for family reasons, I de decided to come back to Malaysia to pursue my career onwards. Yeah. So, so since, 1996 is PWC, right? Uh, the old Pricewaterhouse. Pricewaterhouse. Legacy Pricewaterhouse firm. Uh, then, as, of course, when we merged with Cooper's and Library in 1998, so become PWC. You know, so I, I don't. I know you mentioned you didn't want to mention your age, but I was born in 1996. <laughs> so, so I think my age is the same time as your career with with PwC, right? Yes. <laughs> so, wondering that that's a long time, right? Twenty, what five years, right? What? How come uh, you you stayed yeah. that long, right? Uh, with Price Waterhouse and then Price Waterhouse Coopers, and mm. it must be some sort of, you know pull factor, right? You just say, I cannot go anywhere else uh, yeah, but here. I mean, yeah, Shaz, I think people have asked me a lot uh, on, on this question before. I think one of the uh, things that I always value being in a firm is the variety of work. Mm. And, uh, it is the variety of work that kept me going. If had I do every day just auditing, accounting, auditing, accounting, I would have left long ago. But because of the multitude type of clients and industry that I was exposed to and given the opportunity as well, and that makes every day different. And mm. in my mind, that actually made me stay that, that long. If you were to look at my own aspiration, if I were to reflect back, when I joined PW in uh, KL in 1996, actually I set myself only a three-year goal and then jumped just like everyone else and pursue uh, other opportunities. 
And even then, uh, throughout my career in the firm, I think at least there are two or three times, I actually thought hard and long whether to leave when there was a job opportunity. But somehow the pull factor back to the firm because of the variety of work that sets me uh, stay on. So it, sometimes it's, accident, uh, it's by chance or accident that I stay mm. on right? because of the variety of work. But even then, right? Yeah. Even if you have variety of work, it's not like Monday and then Tuesday different and then Wednesday different. Usually it will be some time. So like even myself, I believe that it's what you do every day that it's like the habits that you do every day that makes you kind of want to stay. But in your case, I still want to know a little bit more on what are there like maybe specific projects that you did that made you stay? Is it the people? You know, because I feel like even a variety of work, um, especially with a lot of my friends and even my peers, they leave after two years, right? So that that's a that's a fact nowadays, right? So in your case, uh, you seem like a kind of person who might, if have the opportunity, you might want to go elsewhere. But this PwC must have had such an impact to you, you know, to yeah, stay. So, so interestingly, right? I think if you, I were to look back. Uh, a little bit of my own career was that one of the reasons that I was recruited back to Malaysia is at that time, uh, Pricewaterhouse was in the midst of forming a specialist group for financial services. I see. So uh, that actually is a game changer for me because it is not about just doing auditing or accounting, but you are specializing in the industry. That is quite exciting. And that was the time in the 90s where people are starting to focus on uh, having industry specialization. Mm -hmm. So because of that, you find that the type of work that we are exposed to are very varied. Mm -hmm. I help I help bank apply bank license. I think mm -hmm. I, I recall uh, one of the early jobs that I have when I was recruited, despite being in auditing, is to apply for black, uh, help, a, help a client to apply for a bank license where I have to prepare the business plan and everything mm -hmm. else. And incidentally, it's in Madrid. It's not even in English <laughs> of us, right? And then when 1998 Asian crisis came on board, when mm -hmm. you know that there, there was a financial crisis and high NPLs and a lot of work to be done. And that and the on the on board effect of the 1998 crisis is actually the, the, the spate of mergers and acquisition within the banking industry. Mm -hmm. And I was smacked into having that opportunity to uh, help do M&A work. Mm. We, I'm also exposed to uh, being seconded as an interim as financial controller for six months for a bank, for example. So all this stack up and that period, I think up to all the way until 2002, that three, four years of experience, every day is different. Not, oh. Not only I have auditing role to play in some of the banks, but I have played a role in M&A work. I sit at the board helping prepare presentations. I, there are times where I spend time with some of the bankers to prepare 16, uh, 16 scenarios for the board to consider which version or which route of a merger they should embark on. So things like that actually, when you are in your late 20s and early 30s, 
it is indeed exciting because every day is different. Every day you learn different things, and every day you add your the number of battle scars that you have, and it really transformed my own personal development quite a fair bit. Mm -hmm. So therefore, uh, that's the reason why we never really think of leaving. But more importantly, Shas, I think just now you asked, you are you are, you nail it. Is that there are many times people stay in an organization. It's not about money, not about personal development, but it's also the people around you. Mm. To me, it's absolutely important. Whether it is the millennial spirit in not at present or the Gen X or the baby boomers in the 30 years ago, the people, the work environment, the people that you work with is a major factor for a person whether to stay in an organization or not. You must be able to click and you mm. must feel comfortable and more importantly, you trust your colleagues. Mm. So I want to specially call out, for example, Dato Faiz is my boss. Boss my boss. <laughs> for many years. I worked with him. He was the one that uh, together with him, we ran from merger and acquisition transaction to investigation work going to uh, Lab One and Hong Kong to do investigation work, worrying about you know making sure uh, that our safety is also equally important when you do investigation of such nature. So mm -hmm. there are a lot of bonding being done with uh, uh, a, lot, a lot of our colleagues. So even you look at the people, especially like uh, my my home ground, I would say right, financial services group in the firm, the partners that you see like the likes of Ching Chuan and Elaine, they have been working with me in a lot of projects for the last 20, 30 years. So that is the kind of bonding that also kept us going. Mm -hmm. Because as you know, in a professional firm, there are always ups and downs as well. And mm -hmm. it is important to have very good peer support as you go through those challenging periods. I mean, that that's... Um... That's a good segue, actually, Suhu, like um, mm -hmm. listening to you telling the story about why you stayed. And I think at that point, I was just thinking a lot of the banks, you're right, uh, sort of merge into what we now have about seven or eight. But there yeah. used to be quite a lot, right? So, um, yeah, that, that was quite an interesting period. But I want to segment to basically our main topic for today, which is sort of around leadership during uh, the pandemic. So you mentioned about people during crisis and things like that. And I think you, of all people, came in at a point where I, do, I can't even think of a point um, worse than what we experienced last year. Even as a financial crisis, I, I don't even think I don't even think it, it sort of covers it. So you came in as a managing partner last year. So how did you feel? Like maybe just your personal feeling when you stepped into the role uh, in the middle of all of this happening. Yeah, yeah. So Shas, it's interesting, right? I mean, if you if you recall the period that I was appointed is July. Mm -hmm. I think I started my role in July, but we. We, the decisions were made around March. Mm -hmm. So today, and ironically, it's two weeks before the lockdown. <laughs> so I was thinking, you can, it can never be a better time to have a change <laughs> in your role at the back of a period where it's unprecedented and mm -hmm. for the last 30 years, right? I have seen through the Asian crisis in 1998, I've seen through the period where you talk about reformacy and the level of uncertainty in Malaysia mm -hmm. and many more things, including the 2008 uh, global financial crisis. But nothing beats the pandemic that you see because 
if you look at today's uh, COVID-19 crisis, it's a, what I would like to say is something like a tsunami, right? It is like not only uh, Malaysia in the last 12 months experienced, first, you have a change in government. Mm -hmm. On top of that, you have the global health crisis added on to the existing economic crisis, right? So all in one. And what you find is that as a leader in this kind of situation, you have to think a little bit more agile in a sense that you have to think fast and respond in a manner such that you cannot assume that you know best. Mm. So one of the things that in response to that is that you need to approach things in a bit more collaborative manner, meaning that you're going to work towards engaging people and also discuss and socialize some of the ideas and suggestions before you make a final call. But the trick to it is also that you cannot make the, a decision too slow because things move quite fast. For example, crisis, what do you do, then do if you have a case in the office? Right? What, what happens when you have to deal with clients that uh, you can only engage remotely? You go to improvise. But in order to improvise, you also need to make decision fast. Mm -hmm. right. So it's kind of a very different experience. It's like on one hand, you need to make a fast decision, but at the same time, because everything is so new, you still need to take a collaborative approach to arriving at a decision. There's no template, all right? Yeah, there's <laughs> no template. So what the challenge is that how do you strike that right balance between being decisive and yet being collaborative? So that is the right balance that what I find as I learn uh, a, a new way of doing things. So that, that that's quite good, right? Because obviously, as I said, like just, just now, there's no template. So you can't just like step one, two, three. Okay, you can you can get this done. Step two, three, four is, yeah. is, is that way. So I'm assuming it, uncertainty makes people a bit like, because it's, you're not used to it like it's like wearing a t-shirt that is the wrong yeah. size it's like you know nothing is good right so um how did you manage that yourself actually just yeah. just curious as well like because nothing is a nothing is a, a template or a step-by-step right, step, right? So, so how did maybe, you manage that? yeah maybe just to share the experience i have is that one of the first few things that i do as i took over is to what i call engage 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 right hmm. uh we must first acknowledge in this kind of situation is that you are not the only one that is feeling uncertain. Mm -hmm. Your entire 3,000 staff are equally the same boat as you. And likewise, your clients, right? Because one of the things that I learned as I engage the clients and stakeholders is that the clients are just like us in the same boat where they are also not certain what is next. Mm -hmm. right? They will look to people like us for advice as well. Mm -hmm. right? So my take is always that it's important that you must engage. I think the biggest challenge and impediment in the in in lockdown is that you can't physically meet mm -hmm. and yet you need to engage. And nothing beats having to make an extra effort to make sure even if it's a WhatsApp or a simple text to your client and to your staff, or to your stakeholders will have made a big difference. So it's important what 
I think the main thing that if you want to say that how we adapt uh, our situation is that we have gone the extra mile to connect with our clients, with our stakeholders, friends, and also mm -hmm. our staff to give them some level of comfort that they are not alone in this. Right? We are all in this together so that you can give the level a bit of assurance because you need that level of assurance to give back the confidence to each other so that you can be confident enough to navigate through a crisis of this nature. And true enough, I mean, if I were to look back in the last eight months, I must say that we are fairly successful in doing this because uh, I have made a lot of friends. I get to know my people much, much better, surprisingly, despite not face-to-face. -face. Uh, the face-to-face -face, uh, engagement is fairly minimal. But I think what technology have done is that it allows us to communicate much better. And the level of connectivity, while it's not at its best, uh, because of the effort done, it allows us to mimic what business as usual as possible. And at the same time, give confidence to all our people mm -hmm. that, you know, we remain strong, we remain connected, mm -hmm. and we can still move and work as a firm, as an, as an organization. I think I'm not the only one uh, feeling that way. If I check with some of the CEOs or my uh, peers in uh, at banks and uh, large organizations, uh, the, some of the MDs also shared the same view as me that this is a time where you need to engage to make sure, make sure that you keep the human connectivity. It is the human connectivity that keeps life con to be continued. Yeah. That, that, that's quite a good answer. Um, and what were some, if you've had any, like, I guess you've, you've touched a little bit, but challenges that you face um, in managing all of this? Because there's a lot, right? You said it was a tsunami. I, to me, it's not even a tsunami. It's a tsunami, hurricane, earthquake, all at the same time, right? As you said, with the political background and with the pandemic and <clears throat> economic downturn. So what were some of the things that you, you know, you face either personally or with the firm that, that maybe you can share a little bit? Yeah, so, so uh, one thing for sure, I know that uh, working personally, for me personally, working from home is quite okay for me because I'm <laughs> quite used to working from home anyway. But I think if you look from the organization perspective, I always think back, okay, what's next for the firm, right? Because you are in a situation or crisis mode, right? The traditional way for a typical business organization is that if there is a certain impact to business and therefore revenue, the next thing one will do is to say, let's cut costs, whether it's in the form of retrenchment or looking for area to uh, trim down the expenses so that you can keep the company afloat. Mm -hmm. However, I also think that if you think in a short-term manner, that will be the traditional approach. But in order to create a sustainable outcome for the business, you still need to continue to invest. Mm -hmm. right? In fact, in my mind, there are times, this is the time probably where you can have an opportunity to invest and make a little bit of mistakes. But more so, it's also a time for you to recalibrate, take a pit stop, reorganize yourself from an organization standpoint and then prepare for 
the new beginning when the COVID crisis is over. Mm -hmm. Because in my mind, as especially now, especially like what we are experienced now where uh, the issue is not going away, but then and yet you have some light at the end of the tunnel because of the vaccination program is underway. Mm -hmm. If you compare to six to 12 months ago, people are asking, how is it going to end? But today, people are already asking, when is it going to end? People know there is a finite period to this period, this, this crisis. So you have to start planning for the future. You can't just look at this today's situation as a crisis situation where you try to use short-term interventions to keep the company afloat, but start planning for how to you seize the opportunity post-crisis period because it's coming very coming back very soon in my in my view. It's not going to be too far away. One may argue that it may be three months away, six months away, nine months away, but I will safely say that by the next quarter or next year, probably we'll be in uh, what I call recovery mode. And organizations must be in a position to seize that opportunity when the time comes. But there's no better than investing. If you look at hotels today, it's the same, right? Some of the hotels are taking the opportunity to renovate, for example, mm. right? Because they know that now it's a low period where, uh, where they, they may not have a lot of revenue and, and gas. So why not take that opportunity to refurbish and renovate? So this example, mm. even for a firm like ours, we are focusing on upskilling our people. We are focusing on investing into technology and also charts, as you know, we are also in the midst of recalibrating the type of services that we want to focus in and, in, and put our backs on. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I guess one of the things uh, I want to poke on there a little bit more is I have the personal opinion that things will never be the same as before, right? People will think differently. <clears throat> For example, maybe uh, instead of a you flying business class to another country to have a 30-minute meeting, maybe you you go through Google Google uh, Meets, right? And many other behaviors that will probably not change um, at all. So how do you think, us as a firm, we can be in the position where to adapt like this this kind of changes? Because we've been around for, I don't know how long, uh, Pricewaterhouse and PricewaterhouseCoopers, right? So <clears throat> I guess the moving forward, how do you see this yeah. uh, pan out? So maybe I'll just uh, paraphrase a little bit of what you just mentioned, right? And also make some adjustment to uh, my based on my view on what's going to happen post-COVID. I think post-COVID will have some changes to the way we work, mm -hmm. the way we conduct our business, the way the market will shift. I think these are the three pivotal points that we should be able to focus on, right? Why I say market will shift is because I think people will tend to look more on the use of technology, whether it's from the market demand perspective or the way we work perspective. Pre-COVID, I, I get access to Google, right? for example, video mm -hmm. chat and uh, video calls and, and conference calls. But I wouldn't use it for the sake of using it. Mm -hmm. 
I will use it only when it's necessary or only when I don't have a chance to do face-to-face. -face. Mm -hmm. Whereas if you look at sometime in the future, people would not mind because they already got used to that they are able to work at home, not in its entirety, but on a flexible basis. They want mm -hmm. that flexibility because I have proven time, COVID crisis has proven time and time again that you can still work effectively remotely at home. Mm -hmm. where where, where it permits. But on the same score, I also take the view that men or women being social animal, you need to interact. You need yes. to have that human connectivity. The digital world will never be able to replace that, at least not in my lifetime. Not in my lifetime. So what we expect is that there are some changes, but it may not be a complete change. So if you translate into what the firm is thinking, a couple of things that you're right, things like, for example, uh, uh, people may not need to fly to Singapore, for example, half an hour, right? Because if you can do a video call for a one hour meeting, you don't want to spend two hours in to KIA and then come back and all the stuff, right? But this also means that the firm must think of what the market will look like because 2020 and before the firm is focusing as a, is focusing on services we are a professional service firm mm -hmm. but 2030 there on we expect the firm not just a service firm but it's also a service firm that is complemented by the product business and what do I mean by that is that we expect digitization is here to stay post-COVID. It, it probably will accelerate much faster now than expected. Mm -hmm. And we as a firm must be able to seize that op opportunity to ad adapt accordingly because the client will demand digital solution. Mm -hmm. But I'm also very clear that as a firm, while we are multidisciplinary, we know where our strengths are and our core competency. So any digitization that we are embarking on must be in line with what we have already been strong in. Mm -hmm. So for example, if you talk about auditing, we are very strong. Yep. We'll be talking about technology-based auditing. You will talk about uh, our finance transformation business in consulting. We should be talking about ability to give clients robotic process automation so related solution as part of our finance transformation program. Mm -hmm. So these are the areas of what I call digital assets that we, or products that we want to develop to complement and strengthen our competitive edge. Okay. That, that is something that I'll be looking at. Secondly, I think over time, post COVID, I see that people will, the society will be much more sophisticated. They will think about sustainability. ESG will come into play in a big way. What I think as a firm is that we must be able to demonstrate that we are part of the solution rather than part of the problem mm -hmm. as far as society values are concerned. Because if we want to promote digitization, we want to promote sustainability solution, ESG, for example. Mm -hmm. It is important that we must walk the talk. 
I always believe I believe that. that. Yeah, I believe that as well. <laughs> you can't have a situation that you sell digitization without looking at how you're going to eat, drink, live digital within the organization. Mm, Our people must be using technology at its best. Our people must embrace technology and we must also invest in technology and digital to act as an enabler for the way we do our business. Then only then you have the what I call the credibility. Mm -hmm. and more importantly, the what what's the right word to use? A, a bit of a conviction, right? You must then you have the conviction to deliver a solution which you truly believe yourself and therefore mm -hmm. to your so that is the approach that I'm focusing on. If you ask me for the next few years for the firm, mm -hmm. it's not about rolling out things what the client wants or what the market wants, but more so is also to internalize some of these ideas in our everyday lives within the firm. Mm -hmm. So that will be my uh, big challenge okay. for myself. Okay, so that that's sort of the firm, but what about I guess yourself as a leader, like Suhu, like um, what as these things changes as you talk about digitalization and uh, market needs and all of those things, how do you also plan to adapt yourself as a leader? Because I'm assuming because trends, uh, people's behaviors and trends and all changes as well, I'm assuming as a leader that kind of leadership would have to change as well, right? Things like uh, you mentioned just now you're speaking at the at a video call town hall you know where we used to go to an event hall that might feel a bit different right yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so maybe you can share a little bit um how you think you would shift um yourself or if if not i think one of the lessons i learned which i think that i will continue to do so post covid is that you know it's easy to communicate through a large town hall for example right typical CEO or managing partner role, sometimes I find that, oh, you do a town hall, explain the strategy to the people, and then, you know, you, that's how you do your messaging, or sometimes through email. But what I also find is that over time, COVID, while allows technology to demonstrate that they can enable different way of connectivity, but at the same time, it also this period also emphasized the need to have face-to-face -face or human connection or connectivity. Mm -hmm. So I would want you ask my leadership style that will change. One thing that can resonate with me as I reflect through the crisis is that there must be greater frequency in engaging the stakeholders, notably like staff, uh, clients in a much more intimate manner with, with, with a smaller group and greater frequency. So like, for example, I do director's meeting or manager's meeting once a year or half, half year once. But on top of that, uh, what I have added into my diary is to pull people from different parts of the firm, eight to nine people and have a conversation. No script. Mm -hmm. Talk about anything what their concern is and at the same time i also want to share a little bit more intimately on why the firm is doing things differently or why are we heading for or for example heading for a selected direction because mm -hmm. only when you have that 
intimate discussion, people can have a greater chance of aligning themselves to the to the firm's view. And but more importantly, I think with those conversations in my experience in the last five to six months is that I also get good ideas. Mm. It doesn't come from the the MP alone. Lo and behold, if a firm is only dependent on the the managing partner giving ideas, then I think <laughs> we have very we have three thousand talent people coming from different backgrounds, different experience, different vintages. Right, I have the young people like us and to the to the middle age, the Gen Ys and, and uh, in their early late thirties and early forties. Many of them will have different perspective ideas, which only I can get if I go down to the ground and just have a conversation. Mm -hmm. And hopefully some ideas which can be implemented for the betterment of the firm. So I think that was one lesson I learned and I benefit from it. Because even as a leader, there's no such thing as you have learned enough. Mm. And you can always learn from the younger people as well. It's not just that you know, the days of, oh, I know best kind of situation is not going to happen anymore. Simply because, as you can see, the world changes so fast. What I learned in the last 30 years wasn't that applicable for a COVID-19 crisis mm. in reality. Nice. So that, that was brilliant. Um, I have one last question before we end. And this one, uh, I'll, I'll, it's a different spin. Um, so if you weren't if you didn't stay in PwC, if you didn't become managing partner in a different universe, in a different life, what would you what would you have been? <laughs> well, uh, I would like to say, okay, I of course this is a podcast, so I can't. I'm not in the liberty to share uh, my actual actual uh, situation. I would have been either a journalist. Oh. Or, uh, which was a real alternative, is to be a military attaché in High Commission. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it would be cool if you have a, like a major or a sergeant as well, a managing I, partner, right? Explain in detail, but that was uh, some of the crossroads I have uh, been. <laughs> I, I must be candid with you that. There are times where I ask myself, what would life have been? <laughs> A different path. Yeah, but you can always play that road in endlessly, right? So, okay, Suhu, thank you so much for your time. Um, appreciate your time sharing your thoughts. And I thought that was brilliant um, that you shared all your learnings and all your um, experiences um, as a leader and also as a person throughout your career. Appreciate that. I'm sure our listeners will benefit from that. Yeah, thank you.